from his studios in New York. It's time for Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora, where sports meets life. Here's your host, Dan Tortora. Welcome back here to Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora on WakeUpCallDT.com, your one-stop sports shop on MixLR.com backslash WakeUpCallDT, as well as on Facebook Live on Facebook.com backslash LiveNowDT and Facebook.com backslash WakeUpCallDT, and of course here on YouTube.com backslash WakeUpCallDT. So however you're connecting with the show, from inside of the Cafe Kubal Studios, we welcome you and thank you for being here. On the broadcast right now, as you know, we have gone around the country speaking with the leaders of the conferences here for collegiate athletics in the United States of America. We have now brought ourselves to this final week of June, and for the first time ever, the Ivy League's Executive Director, Robin Harris, is here with us on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora. A true honor and a privilege, and let's bring her in. Robin, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How are you, Dan? I'm doing very well. And, and Robin, you know, first and foremost, from... From the outside looking in, kind of uh, enjoying it from afar, my appreciation and my respect for the Ivy League, you know, when I'm talking to different players that have been recruited to those schools and, you know, kind of uh, thinking about going there and, and just the prestige of the, you know, scholastic side of it and not just the athletic side of it, of course, and really hearing about the Ivy League my entire life growing up. What can you say about being the executive director of such a prestigious league? that truly is is known inside and outside of the sports world and the scholastic world it's it's every i feel like you know it no matter who you are where you come from you know the ivy league and that's really you know been years and years of of these institutions putting together a fantastic product and, and really working well in their communities but what can you say about leading what so many people have come to respect over time Wow, Dan, that's an ex- that's a great question. It's it's so hard to put in words the privilege and the honor that I feel in being able to help lead the athletics endeavors of the Ivy League, and I it, it's one of those opportunities to truly mesh my own personal values with my employers um, being the eight Ivy League institutions. I report to the presidents. I work with athletic directors who are all committed to a true student experience for our athletes. And we are at institutions that pursue excellence in everything. And that's true in athletics as well. And so we want to provide our student athletes with the best academic experience possible as well as an outstanding athletic experience and that that plays out in how successful we are so I love that we're able to operate consistent with our values and treating our student athletes like our students generally and still have tremendous athletic success I mean, we're going to have Olympians this summer um, several, many Olympians this summer as we always do and we have success in um, national competition as well as tremendous Ivy League competition. So being able to work through various issues, I, it, I, it's hard to believe your question's timely. I'm hitting my 12-year anniversary uh, later this week with the Ivy League, and it's gone by in a blink of an eye, and I'm 
so honored to have been able to advance and modernize, but do it consistent with our principles and representing such fabulous student athletes that go on to be world leaders and leaders of our communities. So it's truly a tremendous opportunity. So thanks for asking that question. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you look at your 12 year anniversary and, and first and foremost, congratulations, looking at that and saying what you just said about, you know, trying to keep those principles as you progress forward and modernize, how do you keep the principles of the Ivy League when you are progressing and, and modernizing and evolving? How do you keep that? Because I find that, you know, any business, any institution, any any organized body struggles sometimes with keeping their ideals that they were built on as they try to get with the times and evolve and, and modernize, as you had said. So how do you balance being who you are with, you know, trying to find your place in today's world? I, I think it's really because our values are truly embedded in the fabric of everything we do. They're part of all of our decision making. And that's how, what's the impact on the student athletes overall student experience. And we have Ivy League specific principles about treating student athletes like the rest of the student body and, and certain principles. So for example, when we were working on increasing our television exposure, we were always up front with our various television partners over the years, including most recently ESPN with our 10 year deal that you know we were able to negotiate which has been terrific, but we've been up front all along that if we're our games are our league games are on the weekends. And that's when they are. And, you know, would we have more linear television windows if we played on Tuesday night? Yes, we probably would. But that's just not even in the realm of possibilities. So we're very upfront. And we uh, are able to say, okay, we will move football game to a Friday night because that minimizes missed class time. And so we're able to be creative but do it consistent with our, our values. And it's and same thing with our sponsorships. We have JMI Sports representing us for sponsorships, and TIA is a major sponsor for the Ivy League. That is an entity very consistent with our values. We've also had Coke and Nike, and, you know, so we can do it with brands that align well with our values. And it, it's just... It's hard to explain how it becomes part of every decision-making, and sometimes you don't even have to think about it. You just know it, and the athletic directors and the individuals they hire, those who are successful and stay in the Ivy League, really live those values as well. So it just becomes easier than you would think. You know, speaking here with Robin Harris this morning on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora inside of the Cafe Kubal Studios, Executive Director of the Ivy League. You brought up the, the television partnership and what you were able to, to do with that as well with ESPN. What can you say about the exposure that the Ivy League is, is currently getting as to where it was to where it is now, how you see that, and what's the, the opportunity with ESPN has essentially done uh, for the Ivy League? So where is the promotion as far as right now and, and where you wanted it to be and then how does ESPN kind of come into this to go a little bit deeper into that deal and and what you feel it's it's done for the Ivy League itself yeah the ESPN arrangement has been um, a win-win situation for the Ivy League and I think for ESPN all around we signed on we had already had some partnerships with ESPN for our men's lacrosse tournament and our 
men's and women's basketball tournaments. And we had instituted the Ivy League Digital Network, which was a subscription streaming service that was very good. And it, and we had streamed over 1,100 events annually. And we had um, Ivy League constituents who were paying to watch the service to help subsidize, frankly, the cost of, of streaming 1,100 events that our schools were doing. And so we had a proof of concept that w was attractive to ESPN as they were getting ready to launch ESPN+. Plus. And as we were looking at what our next phase for the digital network was, our athletic directors charged the Ivy League office, charged me and, and our staff with finding a solution that would increase the exposure, so inc increase the opportunity for viewers, and also at least maintain the the subscription revenue that we were receiving to help offset the cost of streaming all those events. And we were able to do both of those things with the partnership with ESPN and we increased our linear exposure. We had already had a football package with a Friday night football package with NBC Sports Network and we were able to continue that on ESPN and add a regular season basketball package as well as linear exposures for other sports throughout the year. So our our viewership has increased exponentially with ESPN on ESPN Plus and also on the linear. And so it's really, and our, the constituents that signed up for ESPN Plus are paying less than they were paying and getting more content than they were getting when they were subscribing to the Ivy League Digital Network. So it's really been all around a, a huge benefit to the Ivy League and I think our uh, student athletes, their families, and our alumni and general fans. I want to bring you back to 12 years ago as you get close to your anniversary of being uh, you know, with the Ivy League for a dozen years here. What brought you in 12 years ago? What made you feel that this was the right step in your career, the right move for you to make? Hindsight 2020, looking back on that moment, and then bring me to today, and, and if you know that decision that you made has paid off the way that you thought it would. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's consistent with what we've been talking about. It's the way that the Ivy League has always operated athletics, that athletics is an important component of our campus communities, and it's something that's valued, and it brings tremendous benefits to the campus population, alumni, student athletes through the experience, and, and it's all done consistent with the philosophy that this is a part of a higher education experience. It's not a commercial enterprise. It's a truly extracurricular or co-curricular activity. And that's why I got into college athletics. That was my experience as a student at Duke, seeing it operate that way. And, and, and it's why I chose college athletics over professional athletics. So the opportunity to work with the eight Ivy League schools and to help advance the model that we operate, it was very attractive to me. And I am, I like policy. I like trying to figure out how to get to point A, to, from point A to point B and involving all the right individuals in trying to get to consensus. That's really what I do. And I am consistent with a vision and a goal. And so it, this position has allowed me to do all of that. 
in, in being in this position and in, in moving forward here as you try to navigate, as we all do, through a pandemic, a year and a half of, of really trying to figure things out, uh, the Ivy League was at the forefront in making a decision when when this pandemic really started to affect the United States of America. Bring me into the the decision that was made by the Ivy League and just, just that, you know, bring us into the room and what that felt like because once you made your choice, on how you were going to tackle this pandemic and how you were going to move forward with it. The rest of the country looked at that. The other conferences looked at that and, and how swiftly the Ivy League moved on on trying to obviously uh, protect lives and, and make decisions for the safety and health of everyone. Bring me into that, that war room, so to speak, and, and what it was like and, and being one of those, if not, I mean, pretty much the first conference league, whatever you want to call it, uh, to make a decision on on how to handle things and, and it really it's i remember sitting here in my studio when the decision was made and and it struck me immediately that the ivy league was was so quick to respond so what was the room like and and how difficult of a decision was it to make to choose what you chose when really the rest of the country is trying to figure things out as well yeah and and you know this has truly been the most challenging year year and a half of my career, it's been um, a year where I, I, I feel for our student-athletes who have lost out on seasons of competition, and they have limited windows, and they never get them back. So I, I just want to say that up front, that this has not been an easy year, and it's been a painful year. With that said, I, I have true belief and conviction that the decisions our presidents have made have truly been the right decisions for the Ivy League, very consistent with what we've been talking about. And that's, we stayed true to our principles and our values that our student athletes are students. And as such, our campus policies apply to our student athletes and athletics competition. So that has been consistent with every single decision that has been made throughout the pandemic by the Ivy League presidents. And so if you go back to March of last year, we were on conference calls. We were not yet using Zoom. And we they were almost daily with the presidents. And the situation in that you know week from around March 5th or 6th through the 11th and 12th were, was really changing daily. And, and what was changing was how our campuses were reacting to the growing knowledge of the virus. So we went early from trying to figure out how are we going to operate the men's and women's basketball tournaments and were we going to allow fans? And then I thought on that Monday of that week when everything shut down, okay, we had a plan to operate the basketball tournaments without fans. We had a number of individuals that could be present uh, and we were putting in plans to work on that. And then the situation changed where our campuses started limiting gatherings. And it got to the point where the gathering sizes on all of our campuses were going to be so limited that there was nowhere we could host a basketball game. And that's why we had to cancel the tournament. It was that, it was that you know, it was a hard decision, but in a way it was an easy decision because we had to be consistent with our campus policies. And then the next day it became clear that more and more campuses were sending the students home. And that's what led to the cancellation of spring sports because you can't have sports if you don't have students on campus. That's the Ivy League's perspective. And so the the simple principle of our 
our student athletes are students and campus policies apply to athletics really has been the guiding principle throughout the pandemic. So during this past academic year, our campuses uh, had significant restrictions on student life, including no visitors to campus and no travel. And that rendered competition impossible because you can't bring another team in or have your team travel. You know, and, and when you when you oh, and, and I'm sorry, I was um, taking a sip of coffee. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> so, and and throughout it all, the health and safety of not only our student athletes but the broader campus community was really paramount in every decision. So the campus policies were put in place to protect the campus community, and that then also applied to our athletic competitions. And, and with that, when you when you said, you know, obviously you think of them as, as, as students first, and that's the way that the Ivy League stands. And if students aren't on campus, how can you, you know, have athletic events? You know, other, other conferences, leagues, you know, across the country uh, wanted to find a way to still keep that going, even without the, the student body on campus and whatnot. Uh, for you to, to cancel the sports in 2020 and then cancel spring for 2021, how now looking back on those decisions that were made, how have you kind of worked with, you know, the leaders of, of these eight schools, these, these eight institutions, and how have you navigated through this? Because the decision, like I said, made by the Ivy League was was kind of, you know, first on the line. And then once that decision was made to go one step further and say, OK, you know, we're not going to play right in the here and now, but we're also going to cancel these sports coming up. To make those decisions, which I'm sure, you know, outside looking in were drastic, from the inside looking out, after those decisions have been made, working with these institutions, how have things gone from here and how do you feel about those decisions that weren't made, obviously, just by you, but made, you know, together as a, as a group? How, how does everything look now as we step forward? Yeah, I mean, first of all, we're excited about the um, next uh, academic year and getting back to competition with our campuses uh, vaccinated and we're, we're just thrilled that we're planning for a normal fall so I do want to say that and the intent throughout the pandemic was always to return to competition and normalcy as soon as we could and as soon as it was consistent with campus policies and that it was safe for our campus communities. So in the spring, we did have six schools that had competition of some sort, even though it wasn't, quote, Ivy League competition. And we had six schools that were ultimately able to participate in postseason competition. And that's because campus policies loosened up as we were starting to emerge out of the pandemic. And and, and the presidents took it in stages in terms of the decisions about each season because I think there was this hope that things would get better uh, and that we'd be able to play in the next season. And the athletic directors and their staff and our coaches worked tirelessly throughout the year in developing protocols and options and scheduling parameters and all sorts of travel uh, protocols and, and all sorts of ways that we could also compete if campus policies change. So we wanted to be ready to compete as soon as campus policies could change. And we didn't want 
the, you know, we just didn't sit back and wait. We were constantly working and meeting and trying to learn from what others were experiencing and be ready. And so the, um, and that's in, actually what happened is as campus policies opened up, schools were very quickly able to move through our phases of um, preparation and get ready for actual competition. So it, it was a long year. It was a long year, but I think we stayed true to the policies and the way we operate as a league. And it was at times, frankly, difficult to explain, particularly to our student athletes our, and their parents. And it was all designed at keeping the health and safety of everyone in mind and treating our student athletes as students. And so we're just thrilled now that our campuses have um, all eight are requiring students to be vaccinated. So we're going to ha- and and faculty and staff are getting vaccinated. So we're going to have communities that are protected, and we're expecting a very normal uh, fall. You said speaking here with Robin Harris, the executive director of the Ivy League, on wake up call with Dan Tortora inside the Cafe Cabal Studios. You, you had just stated that you took a second to take a sip of coffee. How many opportunities have you had to take a sip of coffee in the last year and a half? Because I would imagine there's not many. So before the pandemic, I had sort of kicked the caffeine habit. <laughs> I'm back on it. So <laughs> it's been countless. This has been, I, I travel a lot and, and I, I do have a busy academic year. Things usually slow down in the in the summer but it's i do have a very busy schedule and my schedule during the pandemic has been busier than ever in my career and it's hard to explain to people how that could be possible when you know we haven't had an ivy league championship since february of uh 2020 but it, it it truly the number of zoom calls are beyond what i can count yeah, you know, and, and for you to have to go through all of this and, and you know, really all of the leaders around this country to have to figure things out on the fly, what has it taught you about yourself and, you know, kind of looking inward as a leader and, and overseeing the Ivy League as executive director? What has it taught you about yourself to make decisions like this at a time where nobody was prepared Nobody knew what to expect. Nobody knew what was going to change tomorrow. Like you said, you know, canceling Ivy League uh, sports, but then staying to the institutions, you know, if things kind of open up a little bit, you know, you could look to play this or we could, you know, have some things kind of set in place. What have you learned about yourself at a time where I think we all should have learned something inward? What did you take from this and, and how do you see Robin Harris coming out of a pandemic? Uh, those are great questions. Um, there's been a lot of leadership um, growth and opportunity for, I think, everyone and uh, and me included. And I've learned the importance of getting outside my house daily into the fresh air. I mean, that in terms of clearing my brain and decompressing. And I, I started in April of last year. So it took almost a month to realize I needed to get outside daily and do some physical movement, even if it was just a walk. I also run, but I found the walks more therapeutic somehow at the end of a grueling day and listening to leadership podcasts. And and through that, I learned that it, it really is okay to not have the answers and to admit that you don't have the answers. And so in a pandemic, 
particularly early on, for people who said they knew what was going to happen, they just didn't. And so it was leading, I'm, I tend to be an authentic, uh, I'm, I'm very candid, honest, I tell it like it is. And so early on in the pandemic, I learned that it was okay to tell to talk to the athletic directors and say, I don't know what's going to happen, but we're going to figure this out. And here's a way that we can move forward and to try and then to ask for help and to ask for their input and what they're hearing and just be open to others ideas always but also to be open to the concept of not really knowing what's going to happen and to be come comfortable with being uncomfortable i tend to like to put a plan in place and know the steps and execute the plan and that just wasn't possible this year it, it, it we would put a plan in place and it would change and so being comfortable with the fact that things were going to be fluid things were going to change we weren't going to have all the answers and understanding how to lead a staff through that as well as a, a league it, it was very challenging but i do feel like it's hopefully given me leadership skills that i can use throughout the remainder of my career and you had stated, Robin, that you listen to leadership podcasts. Who are some of the people that you listen to? Do you have a go-to show or a go-to, you know, kind of voice that you really feel like has been helpful? Because I know that during this time, a lot of people have turned to podcasts, turned to shows. I appreciate uh, those that have turned to, to Wake Up Call here and, and given us a shot as, a, you know, a lot of people were home with time to do different things. And like you said, to get outside, maybe take a jog or just take a walk and listen to something. Do you have a, a go-to podcast or two that you really feel like is helpful? I do. I had one that got me through the, the depths of the pandemic for sure. And I'll, I'll share that in a moment. I, I do vary it some based on my mood. Sometimes it is a uh, news-related podcast, just catching up on the news of the day, or sports, uh, catching up on some sports, or maybe just, you know, what are the new shows coming out that we can watch on Netflix or whatever. But my go-to, my my go-to and, and the two podcasts by the same person that really did get me through the spring and summer and, and into the fall uh, is Brene Brown's Dare to Lead and Unlocking Us. And I know the days new episodes drop and I would go and look and, and listen to those. And I still do listen to them. She's actually on a break now and I'm, I'm caught up. But you know, those have been incredibly impactful for how I viewed the pandemic itself, understanding what we were feeling, the burnout that occurred, and then being able to take that and share those lessons with um, the Ivy League staff and say, here's some of what we're feeling. And it's it's normal and it's natural. And it's hard to believe we can be this burned out from sitting in our homes staring at a computer screen all day, but that is what happens. And then also not even being able to know, and I remember the podcast in September where we were in the middle of it and not be able to see the end of the tunnel and strategies for how to manage that and understand that. And um, and she reaffirmed the, the need to move and get outside and, and do things to get your body moving as well to get through this. So that's something I hope we can all take forward uh, as we get back into the grind of office work. Yeah, I'll need to get out and move daily. One of my uh, listeners just actually wrote that that's their wife's favorite podcast. So uh, you're not the only one that's out there listening to that. Uh, that coming from Robin Harris, the Ivy League executive 
director this morning on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora inside the Cafe Kubal Studios. Uh, Robin, before I let you go, as we step forward and look at the future now, and, and you know, the, we put our eyes on the horizon, like you said, hoping for uh, a regular fall is what the plan is. And when we look at, you know, each of these institutions that comprise, you know, what you what you look over in, in these these eight beautiful institutions and well, uh, well, well appreciated and respected institutions scholastically. And, you know, to have this athletic side that you oversee as the executive director, what does the future look like for the Ivy League, not just coming out of the pandemic, but when you see this this beautiful league and, and what it's grown to be, what are the words, what are the statements, what are the, the notions that we should know as you step forward as the Ivy League? Another excellent question. Before uh, we took a break for the pandemic, we had over 70 nationally ranked teams in the shortened 1920 academic year, and that was without playing a full spring season. That does include the pre-rankings, preseason rankings for that spring, but 70 nationally ranked teams that season. And I'm confident we had some national championships that we would have won that year. And every year when the the Learfield Cup standings that come out, um, obviously not this year, but every other year we are in the top six of all conferences, and that's with basically the Power Five and then the Ivy League in terms of the all-sport rankings for success throughout the year. And it really, to me, that's the best measure of a conference's competitive success because it looks at a multitude of sports and not just one or two, and we are always in the top six. So you couple that with we consistently lead Division One with our graduation rates and our academic NCA academic metrics, and we're we're looking forward to being back and continuing to provide the best combination of athletic and academic experiences to our student athletes, and we fully expect to pick up where we left off. We know we have student athletes that are going to be so excited to get back on the playing fields and to be able to uh, get out there with their teammates and coaches and, and compete again. So we're truly excited. Um, we expect the trajectory to continue for the Ivy League. Our ESPN deal has many years to go. And so I, I think the future is, is very bright and um, consistent with our values and principles. We'll, we'll continue. I mean, it's, we're very fortunate to have students that uh, value the combination of the academic and athletic experience and that will always have a great pool of recruits to bring to the Ivy League and to benefit from the experience we provide. It's truly unrivaled, I think, in um, terms of what we're able to offer our student-athletes and we appreciate their understanding of the past year and we know they're excited to pick up where they left off as well. Besides the the TV, you know, contract that you have with ESPN, are there any other big moves or potential big moves that the Ivy League is looking at? Are, are there are there things that you're currently working on right now that could really improve the progression of of this league? Is there anything kind of on the table right now? Well, you know, uh, one aspect is name, image, and likeness. And so that is something that, as 
that's been under consideration now for a couple of years. And I have to admit, as the calls for student-athletes to be able to monetize their name, image, and likeness started to really gain some momentum, I, I, I had some reservation, and I do still have some reservations about what does this really mean and how is this going to change college athletics. But at, the, at its core, this is actually going to be a policy that's consistent with how the Ivy League operates because we have students on our campuses who are not athletes, who are able to do whatever they want to monetize their name, image, and likeness and to start a business and say that they're a um, biology major at whatever school and maybe they sing and they can earn um, you know, revenue based on their um, name, image, and likeness. So, and we have over the years had to ask for waivers from the NCAA to allow our student athletes to do the same thing. So from our perspective, as long as we're operating consistent with certain fundamental principles, the idea that our student athletes can have entrepreneurial uh, endeavors and bring in some revenue because this is what our other students can do. We, we think that's going to be fine, but we need to make sure that it's not a disguised pay for play, that there aren't recruiting inducements, and that it's done, you know, consistent with our overall approach to college athletics. But this is going to be something that's going to take um, time to figure out the details of it. The concept is easy, and then the details of it will be interesting. But I, so I think that's something for this year where our student athletes will benefit. It will also be challenging because there's, you know, we don't want them taken advantage of, and it's, it's more complicated than it seems at first blush. And we have 8,000 student athletes. So we expect many of them to be able to take advantage of uh, and benefit from what I think is coming in terms of the liberalization of name, image, and likeness regulations. And, and again, that's consistent with our approach to athletics, that if other students can do it, then our student-athletes should be allowed to as well. A few final points here with Robin Harris, the executive director of the Ivy League. As you're listening and watching to Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora inside the Cafe Kubal studios, uh, Robin, you have something within your wheelhouse that is called the Unrivaled Experience, a public awareness campaign that you titled An Unrivaled Experience, uh, speaking on highlighting the league's unique and holistic a student-athlete experience, world-class academics, Division I athletic success, and an unmatched social and cultural campus environment. What can you tell us to go a little bit farther into this and where have you taken this? How has it gotten legs, so to speak? What is an unrivaled experience when it comes to the Ivy League? Yeah, you've done your homework. That's a, a great question. And this is a campaign that I think has been really well received and embraced because it really does reflect the uniqueness of the Ivy League approach to athletics. And when we started to try and figure out what mess, how to update our messaging. This was several years ago. It was to try and explain what makes the Ivy League approach special. And at the end of the day, it came down to the two words, unrivaled experience, but there's tenets below that. And you, and you outlined some of that. But for example, when we were doing focus group and surveys, we learned that the majority of our student athletes are involved in an activity on campus 
beside their sport, in addition to their sport. And we, we don't think that's normal um, in Division One. So the idea that you come to the Ivy League as a student athlete, but you also get to be a student and you get to participate in campus activities, that's really important to us. And it's also the opportunity to really be part of something special across the Ivy League, that uh, the students are on our campuses for four years and then they're going to graduate and the vast majority, some go professional in their sport. We have professional um, athletes in, in sports uh, who come through the Ivy League, but the vast majority are obviously going to find other careers. And when they run into each other through their careers or through life, there's something special that transcends the playing field as having been part of an Ivy League student-athlete experience. And that's what we're trying to convey through our, our messaging is the connections across the schools and the similar approach that we follow in truly having the student athlete be fully integrated in the campus community and having the opportunity to have a, a world-class academic experience educationally and also as a student. And we take great pride in that. And it's you know something that student athletes, coaches, alumni uh, and our administrators embrace and it's something I, I see continuing um, into the future even as we modernize we are able to still make sure because it's so fundamental to how we operate that our student athletes have the best student experience possible academically athletically and socially and, and when you speak about the best experience possible there's there's something that unfortunately in the world of athletics has happened over time and there wasn't a lot of research or maybe a lot of dedication to it in the past this has come close to home for me as i have friends that have played you know within sports that that have unfortunately sustained numerous concussions but i know that when it comes to what you've tried to do you've you've positioned the ivy league to be at the forefront when we look at concussion research education and prevention where are things at right now? Why do you have such a passion of making sure that we really understand concussions? And, and I really just wanted to dive uh, deeper into this with you because it is the it's the ugly part of of what is beautiful. You know, athletics. There's a lot of beauty to that. There's a lot of love and, and passion and, and having your dreams fulfilled. And and especially when I look at you know sports like football and consistently throughout the year speak with people that this is their life you know, faith, family, and football, and and then concussions are on the other side of this thing. What made you want to be at the forefront of research, education, and prevention? Where are things now, and why are you so passionate, and where where have we grown to, really, at, at this point when it comes to concussions? Yeah, that, that's been a very interesting process as well, because right after I started, uh, concussions and, and actually as I started concussions in sports were getting a lot of attention in the media and we also happened to have two of the presidents at that time were medical doctors and so the presidents really took uh, great interest in this subject and charged us with conducting a series of studies and we started with football and then we moved to other sports and what we learned as we uh, did a deep dive into why are concussions happening and where are they happening within the games, 
we learned that we had some national data with football from the NCAA and from some researchers, but we really didn't have great data. And we did not have any meaningful data on college sports and the other sports and lacrosse and ice hockey and um, soccer, the ones we focused on initially. And so we started our own study. And that was something I had never been involved, you know, with something of that magnitude before where we had to get something called IRB approval. And it was really a quite involved process. And we now have professional researchers at the University of Pennsylvania that are continuing the study. And we've partnered with the Big Ten Conference in in, um, conducting this study and conducting joint research initiatives to try and understand why and when are concussions most likely to happen? And then also the researchers are focused on diagnosing um, issues, long-term consequences, and understanding that better. Because, you know, there's some evidence that you have a concussion and you recover and you're fine. And then there's concerns with the long-term impacts. And we're still, there's a lot we don't know. And so our focus administratively has been on limiting the exposure to concussions by, for example, we limit the live contact that can occur during our football season and our uh, preseason and practices. And it's always a balance because you want to make sure the players are prepared for the game and for tackling during the game, but we also want to limit their exposure to head trauma during practices. And so we've taken a leadership role there and we have an experimental kickoff rule That's because we've discovered that kickoffs in games, and I think the NFL found this as well, and they adjusted their kickoff rule that kickoffs, which represent a low percentage of the number of plays in a game, are disproportionately responsible for the concussions that occur during a game. So we have to figure out how to manage the kickoff. So the NCAA let us conduct an experimental rule, which... um, you know, has, we're still gathering data from that. And anything else that we can do to help manage the exposure uh, for, that our student-athletes have to head trauma is something we continue to examine and look at. And we now have about six years of data from our concussion studies. So we don't have, you know, in a lot of the sports, there's really, and even football, which has the highest number of concussions, the rates aren't necessarily the highest, but they have the highest number because of the size of the team. Even there, you need years of data to aggregate it because it's not like we're, we're getting hundreds of concussions on a team in a year. So you have to really aggregate the data to be able to analyze it. So we're excited to start to be able to do that now that we have about six years of data. Yeah, and I would love to see what you come up with for sure once that all kind of comes together. Uh, in closing, you've been so great, Robin, with, with answering my questions. I have a thing on my show called Rapid Fire. It allows me the opportunity to really uh, put someone on the hot seat and, and ask them anything even outside of the world of sports. But I want to be fair and flip it on myself. And, and I know that I didn't uh, prepare you for this and tell you the Rapid Fire was coming, but I'm going to put myself on the hot seat and let you ask me any two questions in the world. So it could be about sports. It could be about literally anything in life. But I think uh, fair is fair. And, and with you being an executive director, you only answer questions. You never really get to ask them. I I would like to give you that opportunity today. So you can feel free for a couple questions to put me on the hot seat this morning. 
You want me to go first then? Uh, yeah, you can. I'm not going to put you on the yeah. hot seat at all. I'm going to let you ask me two, and, and I'm going to leave you off the hot seat. All right. Well, so I'm going to pick fun ones because okay. as I'm looking forward to, uh, other than trying to deal with NIL, take a vacation in the next week, uh, how about a book recommendation? A book? A fiction book. Okay. Fiction, if you. A fiction recommendation. Well, I just got the entire uh, Game of Thrones series of books. So I would say that's not a bad, you know, kind of fiction to dive into. But what I've been reading lately is, and what I like, uh, I'm a big fan of, of comedians. Comedy is a big part of my life personally and creation of that and kind of put my own spin on that. So I'm reading a, a Billy Crystal book called Still Foolin' Them. And then I also have a, a book by Robin Williams, well, about Robin Williams' life, which was very uh, unfortunately sad. And uh, Robin Williams, to me, and I don't know how other people feel about Robin Williams, but he was such a, a big part of my life, you know, almost like an uncle, because I grew up as a little kid watching his movies and, you know, kind of just being, being around all of his stuff. So I do have, you know, a, a book about his life. And then I also have Bob Iger's book, uh, who used to be, you know, at the the head of Disney. So I, those are the ones I'm kind of reading right now. I really want to learn about these people's lives, and I've always been connected to Disney and uh, Billy Crystal, and I have a lot in common, which is kind of cool. But if if I could tell you any book that was really life changing to me, it's a book that was given to me that I just gave to my friends, who unfortunately um, came down with a diagnosis of ALS. And uh, his name is Jimmer Sikowski. Uh, people know him. Uh, they partner with me with Chick-fil-A, uh, Cicero and Chick-fil-A Clay here in uh, central and upstate New York. And so, you know, for those of you that say prayers, you know, Robin, if, if you do, um, I know he would definitely welcome and appreciate it. But, um, you know, he came down with, with ALS. And so we've just been kind of navigating. And the book that was given to me that I returned to my friend and then gave uh, Jim or my copy is Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Album. Oh, and, love uh, that book. Love that book. And there's a lot of other ones in there. The first phone call from heaven and uh, the five people you meet in heaven. So I'm kind of in those areas right now, the, the Mitch Album as well as reading about people's lives. So I guess those are the best suggestions that I can give you because that's where I'm kind of going to tackle next. Those are great suggestions. Thank you for that. And um, yes, my thoughts and prayers to your friend, for sure. Yeah, thank you. It's a challenging diagnosis. Um, wow, those are good, very good suggestions. I was writing them down as you said them. Very cool. I appreciate that. So what is your, uh, what's your final one for me? My final one is along the same lines. My husband and I uh, have challenges in agreeing on uh, shows to watch okay. on streaming and we tend to do mystery suspense um, we love Ted Lasso we can't wait for Ted Lasso to come back but I uh, would welcome I'm, since you're a male I'm going to ask for a recommendation for a show to watch with my husband streaming or otherwise we have about every streaming service there is so <laughs> okay um, I would say 
I mean, do you like do you like the the fantasy sci-fi or is it more like serious? What what type of genre do you normally look for? So he loves the fantasy sci-fi, and there are some that I watch as well. So we're really open. Okay. So I would say, well, there's 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 two shows, and they're totally different. But well, actually, there's a bunch of shows, but but um, the themes are different from the the group I'm looking at on Disney Plus. I'm a big I'm a big Marvel, you know, Disney fan. I I grew up Spider-Man is my favorite, still my favorite superhero. And so I would tell you that on Disney Plus that WandaVision, even if you've never seen anything before, WandaVision is so different and unique because it's a TV, it's like a TV show within a TV show where she's kind of created this world of I love Lucy and, you know, it, it's it's very it's very missed. It's uh, it's it's all the shows that I used to watch in Nick at Night. So she kind of brings that all together, which is pretty crazy. And like the Dick Van Dyke show, she has remnants of that. So WandaVision is actually a really good show because there's never been anything like it that I've seen. And then uh, I would say the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and then uh, Loki yeah. because they're all different. But then to go to Netflix and kind of throw you for a loop and give you something that's totally not the same at all, I have been a Kevin James fan and then kind of not been a Kevin James fan, and I can honestly tell you that uh, he did a show on Netflix called The Crew, and it's about a pit crew that works for NASCAR, and it's about their team, but it's a sitcom, and it's like the most random, why would anybody make a show like this, but it was good. It was genuinely good. To see the background of that, so I would say the Disney Plus Marvel shows. I would say the crew on Netflix, and you know, it, it, it's kind of. I like I like some stuff on Amazon Prime, but the show The Boys is good, but it's also very, it's very you know, it kind of just goes to the line and sometimes goes over the line. So I like season one, but I don't know if I would suggest it for season two and farther because it's very kind of, you know gory it goes too far with stuff but i will say you when it comes back on netflix which uh is a very very interesting thriller tv show season one and two are out there right now and season three is supposed to be coming either this year or next year so i would say you is is a good one on netflix as well those are awesome and i have a twin girls who are turning 16 and they are huge avenger fans and so um, we they put me through a, a remedial course of watching <laughs> a Avenger movie so I could get ready for uh, the last two movies, the blockbuster ones, and Game, and I'm blanking on the name of the other one. But uh, so we have watched. I agree with you. On I loved WandaVision, and we did watch uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, and we're watching Loki now. And I loved WandaVision. I thought that was so well done. Um, and the others are good, but I really did like WandaVision, but the other ones you mentioned are all new to me, so thank you for that, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. That coming from the executive director of the Ivy League, Robin Harris, here on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora inside of the Cafe Kubal Studios. Robin, I know it's the first time you've been on the show, but it was my absolute pleasure to have you here, and I really thank you for being uh, so open and uh, like you had described yourself, that you're very much, you know, this is who I am, so for sharing this information with us and, and giving us 
your time freely. I really do appreciate that this morning, and I would love the opportunity to connect even more so with the Ivy League, and it would be a privilege for me to have you back on the show sometime soon as well, if you'd like to do that. Anytime. I really enjoyed our conversation. That's what it felt like to me. So uh, you asked great questions, and I appreciated the uh, opportunity. So anytime. All right, I'd well, be happy to come back. Perfect. Well, take care of yourself. And in the meantime, I hope all goes well. And I hope you get some more moments to sit and drink a cup of coffee in peace from here on out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I'll talk with you soon. Take care, Dan. Thanks, Robin. <laughs>